beauty of the island of Manhattan was perhaps never more obvious than during this time of Juan Rodriguez's stay in what would become the tri-state region. In the months since Block and Christensen had sailed away in June of 1613, Rodriguez had been the sole foreign guest of the Algonquin Monsies. And the resourceful, capable, and quietly ambitious young man of African and Spanish descent was not going to waste a single minute. In spite of braving the brutal winter during this little ice age, Rodriguez would not only establish relations with the sachem father of Orson and Valentine and his increasingly ambitious Muncie traders, but he would learn the essence of native trade better than perhaps even Adrian Block himself. To the sachem, the cold of winter didn't mean hardship, but opportunity. As Juan Rodriguez was becoming aware, winter was the time to capture beavers. After all, winter was what made them fat, or in more fitting terms, castor gras. And the reason that his Dutch friends were so eagerly willing to cross the North Atlantic, to retrieve them. And as the winter progressed, the chief pursued the hunt with commitment and enthusiasm. He had become an active promoter of this new trade and also of this Rodriguez himself. The metal tools and other hard goods that Rodriguez supplied made the lives of his brethren much better in the eyes of this forward-thinking tribal chief and his people. But unfortunately, not every member of the sachem's community saw it that way. Namely, his own increasingly embittered son. And as the year 1613 drew to a close, the resentment simmering inside Orson turned what was once a young, ambitious heart into one filled with spiteful rage and leading toward the inevitable explosion. Island, the story of how this culture, this world, this island, the place we now know as New York, came to be. My name is Chance Kelly, and I look forward to you saying, wow, history is cool. Episode 9, Unrust, 1614. Hans Joris Hunter. Lambert van Twainhuysen asked Amsterdam notary Jan Fransen Bruning to record evidence to be used in court. Intent on questioning some of the younger men from Mosul's ship, van Twainhuysen knew that they would provide a far more useful narrative of the course of events than, say, someone more entrenched in Mosul's operation like Hantum. So he arranged for Bruning to interview one of the youngest members of the Younger Tobias crew, a gruff German lad of 22 by the name of Hendrik Riblink. In spite of long experience interrogating hardened seamen, 
Brunig was shocked by what this intrepid young man from Hamburg told him, including how Huntum said that they should have shot Rodriguez, simply for his refusal to return to Amsterdam with them. A black rascal, Huntum had called the young man from Santo Domingo, as he venomously vowed to take revenge on the Caribbean castaway. But what really surprised the notary was how Riblink explained that Rodriguez, in spite of his defection, had indeed had his account fully settled by Mosul and said that he would stay there. This caused Bruning to look up from his notes. That doesn't make any sense, he told the young German. Why not, Riblink asked. Because, Bruning explained, this Rodriguez was not a Dutchman hired here. And responding to Ribling's dismissive shrug, the notary continued, So then, Mosul was under no obligation to pay this Rodriguez at all, particularly if he had refused to fulfill his commitment, which included working as a crewman back across to Amsterdam. But Bruning's suggestion that this feud between Rodriguez and Mosul was somehow staged was above Ribling's level of legal intellect and far beyond his 22-year-old attention span. So as the deposition was complete and Ribling stood, he confided in Bruning. I don't know about that setup, Mr. Bruning. This Rodriguez seemed pretty serious when he left our ship. In fact, he added, he even proclaimed that he would leap overboard if forced to sail any further beyond the river. And as the notary later sat down with Jakob Elkins, the young sailor told him about this curious character, Rodriguez, as well, and how, though he had come from the island of Santo Domingo, he nevertheless insisted on staying in this new world after both ships had departed. Which also made Bruning pause and look up once again. All by himself? he asked. Yeah, Elkins told him. Just him and the natives. Savages? Bruning replied. Well, Elkins told him, they are not as savage as they may appear. They show honor and decency once you get to know them. And Elkins went on to explain to the Amsterdam notary that this Rodriguez was himself a native of this new world, albeit from an island far to the south of the Virginias, which was how the Europeans still referred to this eastern coastline of North America. And besides, Elkins continued to clarify, Captain Block has established a good friendship with them in his three voyages there. As he continued his note-taking, Notary Brunig asked Elkins, Why on earth would this Rodriguez prefer to stay in an untamed wilderness instead of continuing on to Amsterdam? Well, Elkins explained, there was one native boy who had already traveled here and back with Block, and, well, he didn't like Amsterdam very much. And I believe that Rodriguez and this native boy spoke at some length, and that Rodriguez was influenced by what was said. And Bruning drew his eyes once again off the desk and toward Elkins as he silently asked and wondered 
Just what the hell kind of place is this? Then Elkins added quite plainly, and besides, he was sailing under Hontum, and well, you know Hontum. And yes, in fact, Bruning did know Hans Joris Hontum, as the supercargo's reputation preceded him. So it came as no surprise to notary Jans Franz and Bruning that this Juan Rodriguez had tired of his company on the Yonga Tobias after a handful of weeks. Elkins then went on to explain how they had been on Blocks Fort Tan in the river for seven weeks when the Yonga Tobias, captained by Mosul, mysteriously appeared. Bruning now noticed that something troubled Elkins about this recollection. The natives, you see, Elkins told him, searching for the right words. They are very... sensitive. In certain ways. As regards honor and trust. Which again made Bruning look up and say how that sounded very much like another society. He knows. And as Elkins nodded in agreement, he also pointed out that the Dutch rarely realize this when they are among these Algonquins, then adding, But Block does. He is one of the few. And from a hilltop perch on the forested outskirts, just east of Sapulcanacan, Orson covertly surveilled the increasingly buoyant preparations for the return of these Dutch traders with equal parts disdain and remorse. And he noticed how not only his Muncie band seemed hypnotized by this newfound interplay with these pale-faced men from faraway places, these men who come once a year in their strange, intimidating, and offensive floating houses, but the eyes of this increasingly cynical Algonquin also watched how intently focused they were coddling this newcomer, the darker-skinned one who had arrived on one of those very floating houses this past year, when the weather was still warm. When Orson did speak with this Rodriguez, they were in agreement that there can exist much deception among these white men. But it was there that their views diverged. Several years older than Orson, Rodriguez had been trading and working with the Dutch as well as the English, the French, and of course, the Spanish, since he was a boy. And Rodriguez was mature and experienced enough to grasp that not all white men were like Hans Joris Hunter. In fact, most were nothing like him. But the wary chestnut eyes of Orson glared down across his childhood home in rueful wonder as his own father perpetuated this capitalistic climate, dictating specific methods and systems to this Rodriguez, showing him in precise detail how the Algonquins capture the furs, eviscerate and prepare them, and stockpile them in meticulous preparation for the arrival of traders on the next great floating house to dock off the southern tip of this island. Meanwhile, 
back in his office. Van Twainheisen looked up from the depositions of Franz Janssen, Elkins, and Mosul's Ribbelink, and he stared at Adrian Block in perplexed wonder. Just who in God's name is this Juan Rodriguez? Rodriguez told the sachem that no, he had not seen his son Orson in some time, though he had last seen him up in these hills to the east of Sepakanakan. And the sachem stared into the dense forest of oaks and spruce, some thicker than two men lying end to end, tall enough to touch the clouds, and as the sachem told Rodriguez, older than the lives of thirty men. And after years of trading with the Dutch, French, and English, this Rodriguez knew about the increasing paucity of resources in those countries. And from this, he understood that furs were not the only commodity that these Dutchmen coveted. The hardwood lumber, Rodriguez was now aware, was as valuable to a seafaring nation in Europe as beaver pelts were. And to his visionary eye, Perhaps even more so. Because Rodriguez was fully cognizant of the reality that the Dutch were the emerging masters of international navigation and exploration, he also knew that they were building ships faster and better than anyone else on the planet. Yet in spite of the industrious ambition of the sachem, Rodriguez could also sense the man's pain as the imminent reality of losing connection with his very own son started coming clearly into view. And Rodriguez also knew enough of the Bible to understand what was happening to the chief, that this island giveth, but that this island also taketh away. Adrian Block proceeded to tell his boss all about this capable young man from the island of Santo Domingo, and he could see the wheels in the head of his visionary boss turning and turning. Because the seed had been planted and was now germinating into a remarkably fertile concept inside the complex mind of Lambert Van Twainheisen. The concept of actually staying on this island that Hudson had found and Block had cultivated. And making a life there. Charles Effenepauze will be right back after the break. From his forested perch overlooking Sapokanakan, Orson seethed. After all, what was the ultimate goal of all this. Watching his tribe sinking into a spell of ambition and greed, beholden to a market and to a society more different from their own world than they would ever want to imagine. A society which had not only taken his only brother, but which was now taking his entire world. And a society and a people that only he really knew. For he was the resident expert on Amsterdam. In fact, the only one of his tribe who had ever actually seen it with his very own eyes. When one such great floating house took him there, he had seen these duplicitous Dutchmen up close, and the experience had robbed him of his faith 
in mankind. And thereby began the dark turn of this young Algonquin soul from an ambitious student of trade to a jaded rogue whose early drive would give way to a certain indelible wickedness. The eager eyes of Lambert Van Twainhuysen left no doubt in the mind of Adrian Block. The captain knew full well that he'd better prepare to return yet again to the island that Hudson had recorded as Manahatta. And Block knew that he would be departing very soon. After all, Hans Klasse was just now getting a strong whiff of the goods that his supercargo Hantum had returned with. Hans Klasse knew that these furs from the New World were Hudahandel, good trade. He also knew that Van Twainhuysen would not be able to obtain a proper patent from the States General in the time it would take him to arrange for a return trip for Mossel and Huntum. So Van Twainhuysen told Block to summon Christensen from Cleves at once. Then he asked the captain to excuse him as a maid announced that Hans Klasse and the Reverend Petrus Plantius were at the door. And an hour later, the weary eyes of Van Twainhuysen glared with a silent ferocity across his oak table before glancing over to the venerable Reverend Plantius, doing his best to find some middle ground between these two fiercely competitive businessmen. Yet behind all his stubborn pride, Van Twainhuysen knew that discretion was the better part of valor. And just as his charge block was forced to cut a deal with Mosul back in Manhattan, so too now did Van Twainhuysen need to cut a deal as well. But when the negotiations ended in abysmal failure, before the summer of 1613 was through, both sides were racing back to the Amsterdam docks to relaunch to Manhattan once again. By early September, the Van Twainhuysen Company had equipped a fourth expedition, this time consisting of two ships, one captained by Christensen and the other captained by Block. Christensen would be in charge of the ship that they all knew well by now, the 110-ton Fortin, along with a handful of Dutchmen, as well as bucks and goats, rabbits, livestock, in order to stay and trade during the winter and thus gain a significant leg up on the competition. And Block would sail in a new vessel that Van Twainhuysen had purchased just for him that they would call the Tiger. And by the second week of September, Van Twainhuysen was ready to send both ships back to the western side of the planet to the market that he had so ingeniously invented. As Captain Christensen and his supercargo Jakob Elkins cleared Tessel into the North Sea, Mossel and Huntum were not far behind. In a ship Hans Klasse had procured just for this voyage called Den Aktekal, or the Nightingale. One advantage of outfitting two ships was that the Van Twainhuysen Company could now stagger their departure and keep Block in Amsterdam for the time being, 
as they would have to make a few hard pitches first to their friends at the Admiralty of Amsterdam, where Bloch and Van Twainhuysen were well received, and their request of a loan of six enormous, powerful cannons was granted. But at the States General, they were not quite as successful. The patent they had sought, an exclusive claim to trade on the Hudson River, was denied. So, as Block raised his anchor by mid-October, his tiger pushed off bearing a letter of approval from Prince Maurice for what that was worth, which wasn't much but also with six pieces of artillery by which Block felt confident that he would be able to impose his own patent of exclusivity on anyone foolish enough to challenge it. January 1614 drew into an early thaw as the natives of Manahatta stood tall with excitement when they spied Christensen's sails cutting through the Narrows. They'd been hard at work preparing for the return of their Dutch friends and were eager to present them with the exceptional trove of furs they'd been stockpiling for months. And when a tall native clad in animal skins appeared on the deck of the Fortan, it was only once the visitor began addressing the captain in broken Dutch that Elkins alerted Christensen that this was in fact the very Juan Rodriguez whom they had left here eight months earlier. Then Rodriguez went on to explain, in a measured cadence, how he was now very much a free man, and requested of his own accord to serve the producer, Christensen, and his partners in their endeavor then went on to explain how hard he and the sachem had worked these past months preparing for their return. And he continued that he had no remaining obligations with Mossel or with Hauntum, that he had settled all accounts with them and was no longer bound to either. But Hendrik Christensen answered directly to Adrian Block, and a key rule in this operation was to make very careful decisions based on very careful research. So before Hendrik Christensen agreed to a deal with a Caribbean castaway reinventing himself as an adopted Algonquin trader, he was going to vet this potential arrangement properly. As Christensen and Elkins met with the sachem who welcomed their return, the chief told them of how Rodriguez had so endeared himself to him that there had been such friendship in the time he'd lived amongst them, that he was now very much, in fact, one of them. And so when Juan Rodriguez arrived on the deck of the Fortan for the second time, the poker-faced Christensen asked the young man of African and Spanish descent once again, Are you a free man? And once again, with a steady gaze and confident nod, Rodriguez assured them that yes, in every way, shape, and form, he was in fact a free man and had no obligations to anyone. And once Christensen was convinced of that, this young man's street value skyrocketed. And just then, as Christensen spied Danachtical sliding through the narrows, 
he knew that he and the Van Twainheisen gang were never going to let go of this invaluable emissary. For anything. So, in short order, Juan Rodriguez had Christensen's men very busy filling the Fortan's hull with the pelts the Sachem and his tribe had prepared for them. And when Adrian Block came upon the island of Manhattan that early February morning, he stared across the upper bay at Tenochtitlan, knowing full well that trade at this place would inevitably be maintained by the formidable weapons on loan, the ones now securely affixed to his massive tiger. Yet the other side of Block's psyche told him that he must do everything in his power to maintain ongoing commerce without ever actually firing any of those guns. So at the time of the year when the waters around Manhattan are at their most frigid, Block boarded the vessel of his rival in an effort to facilitate trade in as harmonious a manner as possible. And though Block did his best to achieve an acceptable compromise, nothing seemed good enough for Mossel or for Hantum. But Christensen was not convinced that a deal with this devil was necessarily better than anything. And as Block tactfully tried to hammer out an acceptable deal, Christensen and Hantum volleyed violent promises to each other. We'll burn your ship, being one from Hantum and I'll put a bullet through your skull, being the return from Christensen. And in spite of all extraneous niceties, just as with the previous voyage, thanks mostly to the diplomacy of Adrian Block, the two sides actually arrived at an agreement. Three-fifths of the business would go to Block, and two-fifths to Muscle. And upon the completion of these eventful proceedings, Block directed Christensen to go immediately upriver to deliver the livestock and begin staking out what they would call Fort Nassau. But shortly thereafter, on the coldest and darkest night of the year, Block would awaken to smoke billowing through his cabin, and as he raced to the deck, his nightmare became his reality on a floating inferno, his massive, beautiful tiger burning beneath his very feet. Block and his men escaped with their lives, and the two sloops of the ill-fated tiger. Neither cold nor adversity were major deterrents in the career of Captain Adrian Block, but the prospect before him at this moment could quite possibly have been the grimmest in his long career. And before Block could make any decisions, Mossel was standing before him with a rather dubious proposition. Block and his crew were welcome aboard Dinoctical with a simple reversal of the working agreement, with the three-fifths share now going to Mossel and the two-fifths going to Block. But in spite of this catastrophic setback, Block still was not without choices. Not only did he have a second ship under his command, but Block also knew that he had options that someone like Mosul would never have. Because this momentous voyage was not just employing one of the greatest navigators on Earth, 
but it also just happened to employ one of the greatest ship's carpenters as well. And Block knew that with the right amount of hardwood lumber and some labor, that his carpenter, Herman Hillebranson, could build just about anything. And it was at that moment that Adrian Block knew for sure that he would not be getting on Mosul's ship or on anybody else's ship because he was going to build his own ship. Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. In an unprecedented feat of engineering and resourcefulness, Adrian Block and his Dutch crew, with the help of the native Muncie band of the Manahatta Indians, began the construction of the first keeled ship on the island of Manhattan. And within months, the 16-ton ship was complete, and the name? Well, that was easy. Onrust, which is Dutch for unrest, or, more fittingly, simply, trouble. And though Block put all his energy into this remarkable undertaking, not every member of his crew appreciated the diplomatic temperament. In fact, several of his men were unable to let go of their own inner unrust. The prevailing suspicion that the cause of the blaze was in fact Hontum and his crew of scoundrels was palpable. Block then received information that Hontum was planning an expedition through Hellgate in order to trade whereby Block informed Hontem that he did not have permission to do that, that according to their agreement, Muscle and his men were to trade upon the Hudson River and not beyond it. Regardless, Hontem defiantly departed in two sloops with 17 men, sailing northward up what we call the East River today, leaving Muscle behind with a skeleton crew. And it was on the very next day that the disgruntled members of Block's ship snapped into action. While most of Mossel's crew members went ashore to collect firewood, eight sailors from Block's ship, armed with carving knives and clubs, boarded De Noctical, easily overpowering it in short order and taking command of that vessel. And their ranks would subsequently be reinforced when four of Christensen's men joined them, then two more from Block's crew, and even two from Mossel's. And this band of renegades even felt free to keep the ship's boy with them as well. And on the morning of March 7th, Block received Mosul upon his ship, the Unrust, to hear the news. And after conferring with Mosul, Block agreed to go talk to them. And he went to the Noctagal in his sloop and called out to them, admonishing them for this wicked act and that they should not be such rascals. He also told them that he would act as if this never happened if they would simply return the ship to their captain. But the hijackers defied Block. No, they said. They would keep the ship for themselves. It was too late. And thereupon, De Noctical successfully made it through the Narrows, and this crew of Dutchmen and their ship's boy indeed became Pirates of the Caribbean for the next several months. 
and from there, Locke and Christensen did their best to manage the ongoing presence of Mossel and crew in close quarters, honoring the two-fifths agreement to the best of their ability. But in spite of any and all such efforts, this would never be an apples-to-apples exercise, because Adrian Block and Hendrik Christensen were the experts. This was not only their fourth trip to this land and up and down its coastline, but they had studied the system of trade practiced here, the methods of procuring the peltries, and the people who did it, the Muncie Algonquins of Manhattan. And as the spring of 1614 arrived, Adrian Block had achieved the status of sachem to the Algonquin people. Block was who they knew. Block was who they trusted. Block was who they wanted to trade with. And Block was who they were going to trade with. And as the weeks passed, the Van Twainheisen men worked tirelessly to complete two critical tasks. One, filling the hull of a Fortin with peltries. And two, establishing a trading post. And that particular task would fall specifically upon Christensen and Elkins. Hendrik Christensen and his supercargo would periodically sail the Onrust and run up the river to where it narrowed, so much so that Hudson had to turn his half-moon around. But with the nimble, flat-bottomed Onrust, there were virtually no channels or streams they could not pass. And it was this kind of mobility that allowed the Van Twainheisen operation to continue to chart and explore a wider swath of this new world better and more accurately than any other European competitor was ever able to before. But in spite of the proficiency of this well-oiled Van Twainheisen machine, neither the building of the Onrust nor Bloch's efforts to honor his treaty with Mossel fully exercised the demons of unrest that swirled about this wild and increasingly competitive island. No. Because just as Christensen had foretold, in spite of two shared voyages and countless encounters with the Mosselhuntum team, this was still very much a devil they did not know. And it was on a crisp, clear morning of a waning April that the Fortan sloop made its way upriver, well north of Manhattan. And as the sunlight warmed their backs, two of Block's men, Esker Annis and Dirk Klassen, waved amiably to the Algonquin traders, whom they knew well by now. And the natives dutifully rowed their canoe out toward the Dutchman's sloop with a good supply of furs to trade. And as the canoe reached the sloop, Esker Annis indicated to Dirk Clausen just how wide the smile on Van Twainheisen's face would be when presented with this remarkable trove of skins this summer. The young sailors chuckled proudly when a musket ball suddenly tore through the morning air inches from the Dutchman's heads and lodged in an oak tree on the shore. Then a barrage of the same followed as if out of nowhere blasting across the water, and as the natives desperately dove into the sloop for cover, the marauding sloop, steered by Mosul himself, rammed the canoe with such velocity that it splintered it. But still not quite satisfied, Mosul's crew drew hatchets and hacked away like madmen at the craft, nearly decapitating several of Christensen's men. 
And suddenly the onslaught was interrupted by yet another shot, but this one from shore, fired from the musket of Juan Rodriguez. And instantly, four of Mosul's men and supercargo Hans Joris Huntum appeared and attacked Rodriguez, beating him down to the landing and into the water. Yet in spite of being outnumbered, Rodriguez fought back, taking the sword of one of Huntum's men, swinging it about to hold his five attackers at bay, just long enough for Dirk Klassen and his team to come to his aid. Klassen and Annas watched the attackers row off and then turned to tend to a badly wounded Rodriguez. Slowly they began to realize that this Tice Volkert's Mosul was in fact a devil that they would never, ever really know. And then with spring in full bloom, the Fortan, fully loaded with furs, finally hoisted its sails, leaving the onrust in the hands of the capable Cornelis Hendricks and Fort Nassau under the command of young Jakob Elkins. And from here, the trail of Manhattan's very first immigrant goes cold, because nothing is known of this remarkable Juan Rodriguez from this point forward. But if I had to guess, I'd say he kept going west, where the winters were warmer, just like back home. And as for Adrian Block, after four momentous voyages laying the foundation for the greatest center of capitalism mankind would ever know, he would ride off into the sunset, never to return to the island of Manhattan ever again. Because his work was done here, the Van Twain Heisen Company, or any derivative thereof, could take it from here. And we can't wait to tell you how that all goes in our very next episode. Island is an original production, researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs. Research Associate James Mallon. Executive Producer Alec Baldwin. For Cavalry Audio and iHeartRadio. Our 17th century Dutch musical arrangements are courtesy of Camerata Triactina. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery on route to saying, wow, history is cool. We'll see you next time. To our growing island audience, Vedant, thank you. Our companion podcast, that's Island Voices, talking about the incredible island of Manhattan and talking to some of the people who have made it incredible. Intriguing interviews with performers, producers, professional athletes, elected officials, and people from all walks of life in this remarkable city, as well as interviews and discussions with other scholars and historians, including one on Juan Rodriguez coming in just a few weeks, which you don't want to miss. And we'll be discussing many of the intricacies and details of this fascinating study of our lost American history. And most importantly, answering any questions that you may have. So don't forget to email those questions to us at thepodcastisland at gmail.com. That's thepodcastisland, no caps, no spaces, no punctuation, at gmail.com. Email us as often as you like, because your questions and comments matter, and we will answer them on the show. Island Voices is available both on YouTube and wherever you listen to Island. The YouTube channel is Island Voices Podcast on YouTube. Island Voices Podcast on YouTube and wherever you listen to Island. Climb aboard. 
history is cool.